I want to begin this morning um, by doing a little bit of uh, semantics study. Semantics is one of those $10 words that, that refers to the study of the meaning of words. And it's a little ironic, you have to study the meaning of semantics to know what semantics is, but that's the study of the meaning of words. And so, um, and, and I do use the plural meanings because uh, it's rare that, that a word has a single narrow definition, okay? Now, uh, some words you might say have a, have a thick definition and, and others a, a more thin definition. And here's what I mean by that. Um, a word like knife. You know, knives come in, in various materials, shapes, sizes, colors, but a knife is simply a sharp object with a handle uh, that's used to cut something, right? It has a thin meaning, right? That, that's what a, what a knife is. There's not a lot of philosophy or interpretation needed to, uh, when it comes to the word knife. But then a word like mind, that, that has a thick meaning to it. And so, so someone might refer to a person's mind by speaking about the entirety of their conscious mental capabilities, right? Uh, or, or mind can be used much more narrowly than that, right? You could, uh, you, you could refer to a person's beliefs alone when you say mind, right? Like, like they, they change their mind, they change their beliefs. Uh, you, you could more narrowly refer to a person's opinions when you say, speak your mind, right? Well, what, what's your opinion? Speak your mind. Uh, it, it might more narrowly refer to a person's um, disposition. We say they're in a bad state of mind. That's what we mean. Uh, it might more narrowly refer to a person's attention, say, you know, pay them no mind. So, so a word like mind, it could mean lots of different things. There's a thick meaning to it. So that's what I mean when I say a thick or a thin meaning. There is a word in James chapter 1, verse 18, that has a very thick meaning. And, and just to make things a bit more confusing this morning, the word I'm referring to is the word word. <laughs> okay, so uh, you see that in James 1, 18, brought us forth by the word of truth. And famously, word in the English language, it's the translation of the Greek word logos. Logos. Now, now I, I, I left off last week. I said as we looked at verses 16 through 18 uh, that, that, that there's still some meat on the bone there that we didn't really unpack last week. Well, that, that's where we're starting this week. We're going to start by seeking an understanding of the word word or logos. Now, uh, in, in the sermon notes, if you look under the first point, you can see that, uh, you know, there, there's different understandings to word, to logos. So, so words have power to them. Um, you know, in the Bible, you can see that in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God spoke. He spoke words and creation came into being. I mean, talk about power. There, there's the ultimate display right there speaking words, and then there was power with those words. Um, I, one of the things, uh, a TV show that, that Megan and I have gotten into lately is the show Madam Secretary. 
maybe that's, it was on, I don't know how many years ago that was on, it hasn't been too long. Maybe you watched it when it was live, not live, but you know, on TV, now it's uh, reruns on, on uh, Netflix. But, uh, but in the TV show, so there's the character of the president, right? And, and, and you see that all the time with the president. They'll be having a meeting in, in the Oval Office and the president will say something and it happens. He says, this is what we're gonna do. And, and that's, what, that's what takes place. That's what people go and put into action, right? He makes a statement and then all the officials depart and scurry and do their thing. I mean, there, there's power in the president's words. He says something and that's what ends up taking place. Now, different than Genesis 1, right? In, in, in my example here with the president, somebody has to go do the things. In Genesis 1, God speaks and it's just, the power is there and it happens. But, but, but we see that. We see that words have power associated with them. Um, words also reveal things to us. They reveal a situation or they reveal a person to us. Um, and, and I'll kind of stick with a presidential theme in my examples here. But, um, but I've been reading through some uh, presidential biographies and the words in those books reveal to me the person, the, the character, the actions, the legacy of past U.S. presidents. Through those words on the page, I'm, I'm coming to know more about those individuals. They're, they're revealing things to me. And, and words do that, right? When we have a conversation with someone, the, the way that they talk, the words that they use, things like that, it, it, it can reveal things to us about, a, about that person. Or, or as Evie was describing down in Kentucky, those words reveal a situation to us as she chooses words and puts them together and we understand more of what's going on in that area of our country. So words reveal to us. And then words also instruct us. So again, thinking about, uh, about uh, this presidential theme, uh, many of the early presidents in our country were foreign diplomats uh, in Europe, uh, primarily. So John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, they all started before they were president as foreign diplomats. And, and as they were overseas on behalf of the United States, they would receive written instructions from the president regarding what they should bend on, shouldn't bend on, you know, when they seek treaties and partnerships and things like that. So the words that they received instructed them in how to carry out that position that they were filling. And so that, that's another aspect of what words do. So we think about this, right, words, logos, word, there's power there, there's revelation, there's instruction. So when we think about John chapter 1, for example, when John makes that famous statement that in the beginning was the Word, and we recognize that he's referring to Jesus, right? John is referencing all of those things when it comes to Word, Logos. So Jesus is the ultimate Logos because through him all things were made, right? The ultimate power resides in him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. So John's referencing that in part when he says that Jesus is the word, the logos. But Jesus is the ultimate logos as well because through him, the fullness of God's glory is revealed, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He 
perfectly reveals God to us. So there's that aspect of Logos. And then Jesus is the ultimate Logos because he is the way. He instructs us in the way, you know, and and the way is him. And so keeping his words and walking in his way, uh, it, it, one of the things he says is it shows our love for God. So Jesus instructs us through just how he lives, through him being the word. So, so all of that to say, I mean, you can see why word has a thick meaning to it, right? So when John, or excuse me, when James writes in chapter 1, verse 18, that, that we are brought forth by the word of truth, or the logos of truth, James is not talking about human words. He's, he's talking about being brought forth by the logos himself, Jesus himself. And, and, and that's, that's the good news of the gospel message right there. But, it, but it, it's, we think about logos, it's the power of the word. It's the power of Jesus that has given us new life, given us rebirth into his kingdom, made us into a new creation. All the different phrases that are used to describe who we are in Jesus. The word has brought us forth to that place of being born again. That, that's power right there. By the power of God, we are who we are as believers. But, but that's just part of Logos, right? We talked about power, but there's, there's revelation and there's instruction as well. And, and, and when we think about instruction especially, that's what James is going to focus on for the, for the bulk of his letter, Okay, uh, what we're going to see him conclude in chapter one is kind of finishing this overview. And then as he goes into chapters two through five, he gives some practical implications and applications on, on, on how the word instructs us, right? How it calls us to live. Okay, so, so in order to kind of set up that idea that, that the word, the logos, instructs us, James talks at the end of chapter one about the need to do two things, to hear that word and to do that word. Okay, so let's, let's look at uh, his statement this morning. We'll talk about hearing first. So James chapter one, verse 19, if you want to follow with me. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So when we, when we read verse 19 especially, that, that charge to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, I think the initial inclination for, for many, if not all of us, is, is to apply that to our interpersonal relationships with one another. That we, we hear that as saying, that's how I ought to treat other people. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And I do not think we are wrong in applying that in that way. There are numerous, uh, um, numerous verses in the book of Proverbs that speak about the wisdom of being quick to listen and slow to speak towards others. Um, we, we probably know from personal experience that being 
quick to speak and slow to listen gets us into trouble, right? If we switch them around. Um, There's no question that words spoken in anger do far, far more damage than good. We recognize that. So so to interpret James's words in that way is not going to lead us into heresy. And and in fact, James will go on in in chapter 3 to speak more about the power of our spoken words in regards to other people. So some Bible interpreters would say what James is doing here is is he's just kind of foreshadowing the topic that he's going to bring up again in chapter 3. I would agree with some other interpreters that that would say James really isn't focused so much here on our interactions with other people, but our interactions with the word. So in verse 18, his statement about the word of truth leads right into his thoughts in verses 19 and 20. And his thoughts about hearing in verses 19 and 20 are reinforced by what he says about the implanted word in verse 21. So I I would say the fact that his statement is surrounded by this concept of word means that James isn't really talking about how I treat you, right? That's important, but what he's talking about is how do, we, how do we interact with the word? So when ought we be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? I think what James is driving at is when we hear the word, when we interact with the word, the logos, we ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, now God communicates some wonderful things to us both through the written Logos, right, through this, but also through the ultimate Logos, Jesus. God, God tells us some wonderful things. He, he informs us that he is mighty and just. That, that, that is great. He tells us that he's full of mercy and truth. Uh, he tells us his, his, uh, his mercy is available to all of us. He tells us that his, his love for us is full and complete. I mean, those are, those are words that I, I love to hear. Make me feel good, not angry. I mean, I, man, I, I want those words. But God also informs us through his word, through the Logos, that there are some things that, that can be difficult for us to hear. So God informs us that we're fallen and that we are depraved. He informs us that our hearts are deceitful, that, that the wages of our sin is death. He, he informs us that our ways are, uh, that his ways are above our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts. Those are words that can be tough to receive, and I maybe even want to, you know, something within me wants to push back on that. I want to try to defend myself, uh, maybe deny the reality of that situation, maybe even get a little angry with God when I hear some of those kinds of words that he speaks. But in light of the wisdom that James gives to us, what we ought to do in all of our interactions with the word is be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, denying or getting angry about what I hear the word saying It won't lead to the righteousness of God, as James says. Trying to work toward God's righteousness won't be successful either. So 
So what can be done? I mean, what can be done when, when we hear words like that? And I think it's exactly what verse 21 says. It says, put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. The logos, right? Jesus himself, receive him with meekness. I mean, that, James says, is what is able to save our souls. Humbly receiving the logos, receiving Jesus. So, so some practical applications regarding this hearing the word. First, uh, as he says, we, we need to be quick to hear it. I think we, we need to put ourselves in proximity to the word that we might hear it. We need to not be so distracted by the noise of the world around us that we don't hear the word. Uh, you know, one of the ways that the ultimate logos speaks to us is, is through the written logos. That is one of the primary ways. And so we, we considerably undermine our ability to hear the word if we don't interact with the Bible. Um, the, the more our Bible is open, the more our eyes are upon it and our minds dwell upon it, the more we are going to hear the word. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I don't say that to stir up guilt within us, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't, I mean, you could find a person that reads the Bible 10 hours a day, for example. They could always do more, right? They could read it 10 hours in one minute a day, right? So, so I mean, the point is not to, to heap guilt and say, well, you ought to be reading the Bible more than you do. I mean, guilt does not transform a person. It never has. It never will. So, so I'm not intending to to stir up guilt, just to remind us of the reality that if we're going to hear the word, we've got to interact with the word. We've got to be dwelling upon it, how to be regularly interacting with the Bible. Because again, that's one of the ways that the ultimate logos communicates to us. Another way the ultimate logos speaks to us is through the spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so if, if we're never still and quiet and listening for the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're likely to miss it. And when we look at our culture, we can say a lot of things about our culture. One of the things it does not lead us to do is to be still and to be quiet and to be reflecting. And, and you know, we've got to be honest, the more our eyes are fixed on a screen in front of us, the less our ears and our minds will be receptive to the Spirit speaking to us. It, it, I mean, it, our culture, and, and I think we feel it as individuals, we're, we're in a place where to be still and to be calm is uncomfortable. I don't even know what to do sometimes, right? I mean, I do it. When I sit down and I've got, you know, two minutes because I'm waiting for something, what's the first thing I'm tempted to do? Right? Take my hand, put it in my pocket, pull out the phone, and do something, right? I can, there's always something that can be done. Man, am I, am I missing the opportunity to be led by the Spirit in those, in those situations, to be calm, to be still, to just, to just be, right? So, so if we're going to be quick to hear the Word, then we've got to be people who are ready to hear, right? Have those moments where 
when the Spirit speaks in that soft voice, we're ready to hear it and receive it. So, so being quick to hear, but then also slow to speak, slow to, slow to anger when we hear the word. James says we've got to humbly receive it. When we hear the word, when we receive the word, it, it, it's, it, it will bring us to a place where we recognize our failure. Um, it'll, bring, it'll bring us to a place where we, we recognize our need for God. And it also brings us to that place where, where we discover salvation for our souls in Jesus. You know, that, that's, that's the point of it. But if we're quick to speak and if we're quick to anger and, and pridefully reject the word that God speaks to us, we'll probably miss those things. And, and you see it in the Gospels, right? So the, the ultimate logos is, is present on earth, walking on the streets, interacting with people. And, and there were some who, who pridefully rejected him. And they ended up shouting for Jesus' life and demanding that he be hung up on the cross. I mean, the, the, the ultimate logos was speaking to them and they were quick to speak and they were quick to anger when they interacted with him. And so we have to humbly receive the word by being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger as we interact with the word. But hearing the word, receiving the word, is only part of the equation, right? If we truly hear the word and receive the word, then what James says is we will be a doer of the word, right? The logos, which is implanted in us, will instruct us in how to live, and it will bear fruit in our lives. Look at what James goes on to say in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's a warning which James gives to us for the first time here in his letter, but, but one that he's going to repeat uh, again. And then the warning is that if, if we intellectually agree with the Logos, if, if we look favorably on the Logos, but do not live our life in response to the Logos, then we're deceived as he says in this verse. And, and I'll state it again, and I'm sure this will not be the last time I'll say it this series, but our actions do not achieve the righteousness of God. We don't gain salvation through works. James has already stated in verse 18 that, that we were brought forth by the Logos, the word of truth. That's God in us. Um, he's stated in verse 21 that it's, it's the Logos, Jesus, that is able to save our souls. So, so before James says anything about actions, he's already made it clear from where salvation comes. But what James also makes clear is that the Logos, Jesus, will consequently be seen in our actions if we've truly received it. 
And if not, if, if, if it's not clear in our actions, if it's not on display, then, then we do have serious reason to doubt whether we have actually received Jesus. And, and you know, it, it kind of reminds me of a, a, a situation sometimes seen in, in my house. And, and I'm not trying to single out my kids here. I'm confident I did this when I was growing up. I imagine every one of us did this when we were growing up. Um, our parents would say something to us, and while we, while we heard the sounds and the words being uttered, we didn't truly listen to them, right? We didn't really receive them. Um, some of you might be saying, growing up, that was yesterday with my spouse. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, right? But it's a situation where we've spoken words, but because of a lack of action, we doubt whether they've been truly heard whether they've been truly received. I, I, I can't physically see whether my words are received. Right? You, can't, you can't see the words coming out of my mouth right now. They, they, just, they don't work that way. But I can look at the resulting action of the words that I've spoken and have a good indication of whether or not they've been received. I mean, parents, we know this, right? I mean, we can tell quick. Now, now, the image uh, that James uses as he describes this is uh, of a person looking in a mirror. So, so the person stands in front of the mirror, uh, even lingers, takes a good look. He says, looks intently. So it's not like he's just glancing and looking. I mean, really looking into the mirror, but then does nothing, walks away and, and forgets what they saw. That, that image in the mirror wasn't truly received because it didn't lead to any kind of action. It was observed, right? It was maybe even studied, but it wasn't received because nothing, it didn't impact the person in any way. Now, now that analogy admittedly has its limitations, right? A mirror only reflects the, what is placed in front of it. it. It shows things as they are. That's all that a mirror can do. Unless it's a, one of those clown funny mirrors, right, that distorts it. And we're talking a, a general mirror. All it does is accurately reflect what is in front of it. The Logos does something more than that. It, it, it definitely reflects what, what is in front of it. It reflects things. It shows things as they are. But the Logos also shows things as they should be. Right? You think about that with the ultimate Logos, Jesus. He shows us true humanity. But the Word of God, the written Logos as well, it, it shows us how things should be. So I think, I think James recognizes the limitation of the mirror analogy, and that, that's why he deviates from it in verse 25. So rather than looking into a mirror in verse 25, he now has the person looking into the, the perfect or, or, or the complete or the fulfilled law. The law, looking into the law of liberty, the law of freedom, he goes on to say. Now, law is another one of those thick words. There's a lot of meaning <laughs> wrapped up in that. And, and it's a word and a topic that James is going to bring up again a couple times in his letter. So, so a little digging here is going to be worthwhile today and in the future. So, so if we are someone who is familiar with the whole of the Bible... We probably read that word, law, and, and our thoughts immediately go to Old Testament law, right? 
I mean, I know mine go there. I, I'm, I'm going out on a limb and assuming that most of ours do as well. And, and along with the moral commands of the Old Testament law, we also picture the animal sacrifices that were prescribed under the law. And we know that the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, was not able to bring salvation to anyone. Right? I mean, Hebrews 10 says that the law could not make perfect or complete those who drew near to it. We, we, we can't adhere perfectly to the moral component of the law. We just can't. And additionally, the blood of the bulls and the goats that were sacrificed, they couldn't take away sin either. The animal sacrifices were as successful as the moral commands of the Old Testament law. So, so we look at that and, and we see the shortcomings of it. And, and Paul, in his letters, describes the law as a law of slavery or wrath or death, or sin. He, he uses all of those descriptions. But if that's the understanding of the law that we assume James has in mind here and throughout his letter, uh, we're going to miss what he's saying, because James doesn't, he's not viewing the law through that lens. We, we have to remember, James is focused on the logos. He's focused on the word within us. In Matthew chapter 5, the ultimate Logos stated that he had come to fulfill the law. And he didn't just state it, he did it, right? And again, Jesus is, he's the ultimate revelation of all those earlier words that were spoken by God. Jesus completely upheld the law in our place and, and, and made a way for God's righteousness to rest upon us. And, and in addition, when James says that the word, the, the logos, is implanted within us, he's making a very strong connection back to Jeremiah 31, where, where God makes a statement about the future new covenant, and he says that he's going to put his law within his people and, and write it on their hearts. So, so to look at the law apart from Jesus is to see a law of slavery and wrath and death and sin. So Paul is right in his description. He's describing the law apart from Jesus. But to look at the law through Jesus is to see the law fulfilled and something which brings liberty and brings freedom to us as a result. It is a way of life which is a way of liberty and a way of freedom not of slavery and death and death to sin. It's a way of life which we are empowered by God to follow. That's how James sees the law. So, so for those of us who have received salvation from Jesus, the word has been implanted within us. God's perfect law has been written on our hearts. And what James says is it will show itself through our doing. It, it will come out. If we've truly received it, if it's truly been implanted within us, it will bear fruit. He, he says the one who perseveres in the strength of God, walking according to that implanted word, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, and, and, and because we're called to persevere, in verse 25, I, I think it just shows that, that doing the word takes effort. It's a struggle at times because of the temptations that we face. But because James says that we'll be blessed in persevering, we can know that it's worth it. 
It's worth it to live out this implanted word. Doing the word will lead us in the way of liberty and freedom. Again, doesn't bring about salvation, but it leads us to walk in our salvation. So then when we get to the, the uh, last two verses of James chapter 1, he, he gives a general summary of what those two scenarios that he described looks like. Someone who only hears the word, that's one scenario, and then compared to someone who both hears and does the word. So look with me at verse 26. He gives that first scenario. He said, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The other scenario, verse 27, religious that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep one's self unstained from the world. So again, that first example in verse 26, it reveals that the Logos has been heard but not truly received. When a person has the, the, the example he gives, when there's no control over their words, they show that while they might have heard the word, the logos, the, the lack of doing reveal, reveals a lack of humbly receiving the word. And again, James will really dive into that topic specifically in chapter 3. But then in verse 27, he gives uh, two examples of what it looks like if the Logos has not just been heard, but, but received and then shown through actions. He said a person who cares for orphans and widows, I mean, th those in that culture who were vulnerable, had nothing materially significant to offer in return. That person showed through their actions that they had received the word. And, and the person who keeps themselves unstained from the world also shows that they've truly received the word. So, uh, so I started today with a, uh, a $10 word, and I'm going to end with another one. And honestly, I don't really know what that means. I don't know if I owe you $10 or you owe me $10. Somebody might have to kind of set me straight on that. If you owe me $10, maybe I'll keep throwing them in there, but uh, soteriology is another $10 word, and, and that just simply means the study of salvation. Study of salvation. When, when, when you examine the details regarding salvation in Jesus Christ, when you look in the Bible and how it describes it, you come to see that the Bible presents salvation not as a one-time event. I know we often think of it that way, but, but the Bible presents salvation as a process. A process that includes repentance, faith, justification, regeneration, sanctification, and, and ultimately, we're told, glorification at our bodily resurrection. And so when it comes to one of those parts of the process of salvation, when it comes to sanctification, that speaks of an ongoing process, an ongoing transformation whereby we reflect God's image and his character more and more clearly in our lives. And, and it, is, it is a transformation in which God is unquestionably at work. It is God doing his work within us, the Holy Spirit working within us to, 
produce good fruit. It's why, why Paul refers to it as the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? It is God working within us in our sanctification. But the Bible also presents it as a process in which God partners with us. In other words, God does not sanctify us against our will. He just doesn't. He, he sanctifies us as, as we yield to him. It, it, it is a partnership in which Paul calls us to keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Paul calls us to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body or of the sinful nature. It's a partnership is, is how the Bible presents it. And I believe it's this partnership that James focuses on so intently in his letter. He urges believers to understand their role in this partnership of sanctification. So the word, the, the, the logos, Jesus himself, right, it's been implanted within us by God, and we partner with him by receiving that word, and not just hearing it, but, but doing it, living it out. And, and so as we get into chapter 2 next week and on through the rest of the letter, again, the, 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 James will kind of dive into some specific topics, and, and it's our sanctification that he has in focus as he talks about those different things. You know, God's, God's desire for us is not only that we be saved from eternal punishment for our sins. I think, I think we as an evangelical tribe can, can kind of present it that way sometimes, right? Give a gospel message, proclaim the, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and everybody that wants to receive that, pray the prayer, or come forward, or do whatever, and now you're saved and you're good. And we at times just stop it there, right? That's the end of the service, and, and, and on we go. But God's desire is for so much more than just only being saved from eternal punishment. He desires also that we grow to reflect him more and more clearly to the world around us. That's why he sanctifies us. If he didn't desire that, he, he'd be done. We would just stop then, and then we'd be living our life, doing whatever, just kind of waiting until we die or until he returns, and, and away we go. But he desires that we more clearly reflect him. And so if we, will, if we will be quick to hear the word, and if we will humbly receive the word and put it into practice, if we will do it, we'll find ourselves keeping in step with his spirit. And, and James says, being blessed as a result, blessed because we will be sanctified more and more in him. We will reflect him more and more clearly to all those around us. It's a high calling, right, for sure, but it's a blessing at the same time. And so it's really what James is focusing on in chapter one in a general sense, and we'll dive into it quite a bit more specifically in, in the following chapters. Let's stand together. Let's come to God in prayer and really thanking him that he reveals himself to us, that in his power he has transformed us and made us new, and that he is, through his word, continuing to instruct us. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning. We, we recognize your greatness 
your awesome power, your awesome wisdom and knowledge, and your awesome love for us as well. There's just so much that you're doing in our lives that it, uh, it's so hard to even wrap our minds around it. Uh, but I thank you uh, for what James calls us to focus on here regarding receiving you and not just not just hearing but then living out what you've implanted within us I, I thank you that that life is found in you that we come to you in faith that you make us new that we're new creations we're born again something that we had absolutely no hope of ever doing on our own we thank you for that and, and in many ways, I'm, I'm humbled that you call me to partner with you in this sanctification process. To yield myself to you, to humbly receive your words and your instruction in keeping in step with what you have for me. God, but I, and, and I'm confident I can speak for all of us here, we need strength in doing that. We need wisdom in doing that. Would you help us in it, God? Would you provide what we don't have? And God, I thank you for the blessing of walking with you. It's freedom. It's liberty, as, as James referenced. God, I pray that you would stir up that desire within us more and more, not, not just to be saved from an eternal punishment, but to be walking in step with you here and now and finding joy in that and being blessed by it. I give you praise this morning, God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. Help us to humble ourselves before you. We pray this in your name. Amen.